professional relationships, our working relationships, we don't often think about boundaries and how our different attachment styles, how our different histories inform how we go about communicating with people and negotiating what we want or what we need or what we hope for or dream for at least. Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts Charles Perry Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs. With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature. So let's get into today's episode. It's, it's what's happening now out there. Apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> it's the new thing. I'm like, I've only been doing podcasting about four years, but I'm already <laughs> like an antique podcast. <laughs> I definitely am. My my podcast, The Breakup Monologues, started end of 2017, I guess. So, wow. yes. Yeah, I suppose. I'm, I'm recording mine on wax cylinder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah, you send by carrier pigeon. Yeah. Your, yes. your questions Monologue. are sent right, forward. Yes. <laughs> I guess most people started podcasting around 2020, right? Because it was like the, you know, the, the I would say like the, the modern podcasters, I should say. Well, I think a lot of people started know. doing it. I mean, we're a bit more, we're more veterans, yeah. if you know. Aren't we? Yeah. yeah. OG podcasters. But then everyone <laughs> jumped on the bandwagon around 2020. Well, I lockdown, guess during yeah. lockdown, wasn't it? Mm. Because people wanted something to do to be able to communicate mm. and connect with people. Mm. And it's yeah. a great way to do that. You've got a lovely voice, actually, on, on the, on the, in here. It sounds it sounds very radio even. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, you are a podcaster, so you, yeah. should, you should have a good voice. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Very excited. Oh. I'm particularly excited about talking to you because I just find this area so... Uh, What's a good way of putting it? Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating, yeah. But we, was, we were talking on the, in the car on the way up here and, and Giles is obviously... You know, you've been married for how many years? 20. 20 yeah. years of marriage. Congrats. You about. Thank you. <laughs> um, you obviously met when you were six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to lie about the state of my face. But yeah, um, yes, yeah. So yeah, from, from, yeah, and actually probably married quite young in some respects. Um, my wife is only um, just turned 20 so that's quite young seems these days to be married at that age yeah oh I think so definitely I've just got married um well I was 50 when we got married last year so oh congratulations, congratulations. to you <laughs> thank you wow. I mean I guess it's a bit different for me as a gay woman I wasn't I wasn't allowed to when I was younger and I never never thought that I would because I assumed that was going to be the way things were it was something I was campaigning about as mm. a student in the 1990s we staged a fake wedding outside York Minster on Valentine's Day in 1992 and yeah we were just thinking this was pure science fiction that two women and two men would get married and we were sort of shouting through megaphones love is not a crime yeah. mm. wow. and so yeah it's quite surreal in a way that things have come such a long way but also you know, there's still such a long way to go. Mm. Mm. And I think we forget that even though things are much easier for LGBTQ plus people, yeah, sometimes the way we speak and think about relationships is not always inclusive and conscious of different types of relationship narratives, which is why for me writing and speaking about relationships from the perspective of a gay woman, mm. a midlife gay woman, is really important and having that authenticity and having that voice represented amidst the sort of heteronormative texts that have, mm. you know, a lot of really fascinating information about how we fall in love and out of love. But I really wanted to focus on a more inclusive way of thinking about relationships and also a conscious and compassionate way in the, mm. <laughs> this weird era that we're in. Of, um, I mean, we talk about the podcasting boom, but we've had this huge boom in dating app technology and how we can meet one another and how we can then treat people as maybe something a bit disposable. And we ghost people and there's this whole new language about how to 
to disappear and let people down without even having mm. a conversation. Uh, my favourite one being Marleying, where you ghost someone and pop up again at Christmas. <laughs> Ooh, I haven't heard of that one before. That's good. Well, I was going to say, we, it feels like a, a golden age might not be the right terminology, but there does seem to be an awful lot of language now around relationships and stuff. And uh, and like, things like ghosting and, and gaslighting, all these things I obviously feel quite new, but I guess maybe they're not that new. I mean, obviously the the... The actual act of those things is not new, but the actual wording perhaps is. Yes, I think technology has made a lot of these behaviours easier. It's facilitated these behaviours. But of course, historically, they've always gone on. We've always just disappeared and not wanted to have that conversation, that awkward conversation with someone when we don't fancy them anymore or we don't want to have a relationship with them. Mm. But I suppose in, you know, in my teens, in the 1980s, people just sort of didn't turn up to a date and mm. you got stood up in the pub. Uh, that happened to me once, which was absolutely mortifying. Um, so, you know, maybe that's worse. You might have a preference as to what you would prefer but if someone stops replying to you you just wonder where have they gone and indeed one of the chapters of my book the breakup monologues also the same title as my podcast um is i thought i'd been ghosted but he'd just gone to prison mm. oh my god yeah <laughs> i i actually read that i've read your book and it was that was quite a catchy catchy title to the chapter i was immediately like hmm hello I'm interested. <laughs> You've piqued my interest. But I guess with social, well, not just social media, but just phones and technology in general, it's easier to sort of, to keep in touch anyway. And so it's more noticeable when somebody does drop off the radar because, you know, everyone, almost everyone nowadays um, has a phone or social media or like some way of keeping in touch. I mean, like when my parents, for example, were dating, they had to write each other letters. And so it's, or they would like walk down to the local um, phone box and it would be like a whole big thing. And so it was a real effort to sort of keep in touch and, and remain friends or be in a relationship or whatever that might be. Whereas now it's so easy to keep in touch. And so I guess it's more noticeable if someone does try to drop off the radar and it's easier to kind of keep like pecking away, like, oh, you know, you know, sending messages and what do they say, like double texting or being left on red and stuff like that. Like the lexicon is just absolutely vast nowadays i know and i love the idea of still writing letters if mm. we can ever find the time um although postage is really expensive now isn't it i don't, yeah. I don't even know what it costs to post a letter maybe i should hand deliver it which then <laughs> defeats the object of having written yeah yeah you could yeah i was gonna say you could read it to them yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i know one of my relationships when I was, oh, yeah, it was when I sort of first went away to Edinburgh in my mid-30s and I'd only just met somebody and fallen in love. And so we wrote to each other quite a bit. I mean, she did come and visit me for a brief time during the Fringe. But, well, yeah, we wrote each other letters and it was so nice because even then that was like the mid-noughties and it still felt a bit old-fashioned to write letters. But it was mm. it was such a thrill. It was such an exciting thing to see an envelope with her handwriting on, especially when you're away doing the, the mayhem of the fringe. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> you yeah. need a bit of yeah. of moral support and a bit of a cheerleader saying, hang in there, <laughs> hope it's going all right. Yeah, I, I had an ex-boyfriend who was in the military and he, um, during like particularly like, during basic training and stuff like that, they weren't allowed phones. So some of them would kind of sneak their phones in the night and stuff. But for the most part, we couldn't keep in touch via phone. And, uh, and so he used to send me letters and it would always come in this like military uh, envelope. And it was really exciting because I obviously knew who it was from. Ministry of Defence or something. Exactly. <laughs> I, I won't say what uh -oh. kind of ministry, <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder, I wonder yeah. if anyone had read it to check. Probably, yeah. 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 Well, that's a, yeah, that's interesting, actually. That's that's a whole thing. Because then your privacy. I mean, it, well, there wasn't any partic anything particularly sordid in it. Mm. That I Shame. Yeah, <laughs> I think I've still got them. I, I think I put them in my memory box because of like the fact that they were these really cool, cool letters. I was nice. Like, when am I ever going to do that again? <laughs> Realistically. <laughs> Yeah, well, my wife and I wrote each other's letters when we first started going out. Again, it was early noughties and I probably felt, did feel a bit old-fashioned. For a minute there, I thought you said you wrote each other's letters. And I thought, did you sort of 
pretend to be her and, and write a letter. That would be very <laughs> odd. Uh, no, we each other version. letters. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure this is what you say. Yeah. It's a new kind of role play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's pretend to be each other. <laughs> but um, th- but it was it was really special. I think that's um, we've obviously still we've kept all the letters as well, and actually, um, you know, occasional nostalgia trips, go and have a look through and see how young and strange we were in those days but it it is something lovely about that the the physical act of writing um and then obviously being able to read it you know and obviously there's a lot of effort goes into it so um yeah there is something special about letter writing maybe something that should come back a little bit more Mm. yeah what's your um favorite terminology i know you just mentioned marleying have you got a favorite terminology Oh, um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's so many phrases, but I tend to prefer the certainly the concepts that are about sort of kinder, more compassionate behaviour as opposed to, mm. I think, all of these phrases like ghosting and breadcrumbing and icing and benching, you know, there are so many. They're all really about just you know, disappearing without mm. without speaking to somebody right. because you don't want to actually have that conversation and you, you're not able to own it and own the fact that you perhaps have promised in some way or, or hinted at the potential of a relationship and then you aren't able to follow through with that. Mm. Um, I mean, I feel in the sort of LGBTQ plus community over the years, we've had a slightly different take on that. And I think in some ways we're now as we have access to marriage and and more equal rights, the sort of downside of that is that we're absorbing some of the heteronormative culture, which is not always as kind. I think when we were really, really discriminated against, when we were right in the thick of horrible homophobic policies, which meant that teachers couldn't talk about being Mm -hmm. gay Mm. um, in schools and and we were invisible and the AIDS and HIV crisis meant that homophobia was at an all-time high when I was a teenager. And so I think people who were gay really, really stuck together and were really kind to one another. And you know what? If you had slept with someone or you had a date with someone or a little fling with somebody and it didn't work out, you would probably make a real commitment to be friends mm. and look out for one mm. another, even if you weren't going to get married and, you know, well, you couldn't get married. But, you know, even if you weren't going to, you know, sort of live together and be a couple, you were still bonded or allied in some way. You were still, you know, fighting this fight for visibility and some kind of voice in the in the world so I suppose I come from this slightly old school queerness um, and now you know there are all these brilliant young queer people and labels are altering a little Mm. which I think is really interesting and and I've decided to sort of go with this to some extent because I've always thought of myself as a lesbian because my primary important significant emotionally deep loving relationships have been with women however I in the book there's a chapter where I go to a sex lab and participate in this bizarre experiment where (laughs) my genital arousal is being measured and things like my pupil dilation are being measured whilst I'm looking at erotic images of of men and women and You know, the idea, I suppose, is that for many people, in particular among women, our sort of animal sexuality may be a bit broader than the sort of narrowly constructed social, cultural and political identities that we've attached to ourselves via these labels, Mm. which have served a really important purpose when we were campaigning for things like same-sex marriage and and for equality. But I appreciate that our human sexuality is so much more complex than these sort of binaries um, and nobody... Now we're coming to terms with the fact that people aren't necessarily male or female and also people aren't necessarily gay or straight. And so I have started talking about the fact that I'm probably on a more sort of complex spectrum where perhaps I am a bit bisexual or pansexual because, yeah, sometimes I've been attracted to to people who aren't women. You know, I've been Mm. attracted to men and non-binary people. And so, you know, it is complex, but I do think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there's also our sort of social, cultural and political identity, which is how other people treat us and place us and position us in the world. And that's where our power and our privilege 
comes from. And so as a gay woman, there are a number of things that I have not been able to do, mm. like have children, you know, really significant things, which you really, when you reach my age and you're perimenopausal and you're probably not biologically able to have children anymore, you really think about how these things have altered the course of your life. And that can be really really sad and really poignant and you know it might have been nice to at least have had that as a possibility but it really was only a possibility for sort of the more affluent lesbians the real pioneering mm. lesbians mm. the ones who could afford IVF which is not cheap um so I think we need to whilst we have more fluid labels and that's really great I sometimes find it challenging when there are, uh, and I sort of do some jokes about how, you know, straight women come up to me and go, oh, I wish I was a lesbian. And uh, <laughs> I, I've got a bit in my set now where I, I say to this woman who says that to me, you know, rather than sort of list all the structural inequalities that might have meant it might be yeah. easier to be a lesbian, I say, oh, well, but have you tried scissoring? <laughs> <laughs> because as a comedian, you've got to make everything a bit fun. Mm. Um but I do, I do struggle with this new sort of notion of aspirational queerness. Like, oh, I'm going to say that I'm queer because that makes me a bit sort of edgy and interesting mm. without those people necessarily always having an understanding of the legacy of trauma that people mm. who've lived queer lives for the past few decades have really mm. gone through and what they're still dealing with and, and how that has impacted and played out in their lives. Um, and so... You know, recently I've found myself feeling upset with someone that I, I really love and respect, who is a friend of mine on social media and in the real world too, um, who is a, a heteronormative bi woman who's very much at the heteronormative end of the sort of bisexual spectrum and normally dates men. And she has been posting some of her comedy clips, which are great. You know, she's a brilliant comedian. Um, but there are clips that I believe erase lesbian women. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really hard. And I kind of think if we can't communicate with the people who we actually love and trust and respect and who are part of our community about, you know, I'm not sure I feel okay about that joke that you do then how can we even go further than that and sort of address the people that really are stirring up the hatred and, mm. and causing the problems for our community and the people that we love so in some ways I've been trying to think about how to communicate with with the people within my LGBTQ plus world about how we all need to think about our privilege about the intersections of our privilege and how you know, maybe I'm not always conscious of being, you know, a white gay woman or an able-bodied, you know, gay woman and, mm. and some of the the complexities about how we've arrived at where we're at and what we've been through and what people other than us might have been through and their experiences. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, yeah, once you've been, I mean, I hate to sort of generalise, but I guess once you have been through one sort of struggle, you become a little bit more, your eyes are kind of open to all the different sorts of struggles in different areas as well. Whereas somebody that hasn't been through any of that discrimination is completely privileged and probably doesn't understand as well. Like as, I don't know, for example, I hate, to, I don't want to pick on you, Giles, but you know. That's like, fine, I'm, I'm, I'm here for, I'm here for the That's why he's here. <laughs> but like as a straight white man, mm. I guess yeah maybe you might not like we've had conversations so many times where I've sort of talked about how angry I get, personally get about sort of like um gender inequality and how women in sort of like my industry aren't represented or paid enough and blah 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 and then so there's areas that you might not see and then there's areas that I don't see as a straight white woman as well so it's it's you know it's hard because obviously that's come off of the back of all the discrimination and all the hatred and just like all this horrible stuff but it's good that you've kind of within that you're more kind of empathetic and you've created like a more of a compassionate kind loving community and and I know that you said before that you tend to sort of stay friends with people after breaking up because you know you've got that in common kind of thing and you you understand what it's like to have all of that hatred stirred up yeah that's certainly been the the history and the the tradition if you like of uh, lesbian breakups i mean i believe that we pioneered conscious uncoupling long before gwyneth <laughs> and um 
I think that's what I was really trying to come to when we started talking about terminology mm. was mm. even though I don't particularly like the sound of conscious uncoupling, it sounds a little bit grand and pretentious, doesn't it? But I really like the theory of it, the mm. idea of remaining close, maintaining some kind of family-like ties. Um, because I think in general, I, when as soon as I got to London, at least in the... Um, uh, about 1993, when I graduated, I felt like, like LGBTQ plus people, even though we only really said lesbian and gay then, there were loads of trans people, there were loads of queer people, there were loads of people who were more fluid, who were bi, who were pan, who, but we didn't quite have all the language to understand it yet and we didn't mm. have the same conversations now we do about pronouns but I was friends with loads of trans women and they were like you know I'm a woman and my pronouns are she and her and I'd be like yeah of course you know there, there wasn't really any issue um so yeah I think there, w there was this feeling of it being a family mm. and Armistead Maupin one of my favorite writers actually talks about logical family as opposed to biological family and this idea that you can you know choose your family and construct and create a different type of family maybe if you don't have a big biological family or indeed if they reject you or you don't mm. get on which was the, the case for many many gay people in, in decades gone by so I do really like this idea of sort of chosen family and constructing a different type of family it might be sort of fluid throughout your lifetime different friendships do come and go and mm. that can be really sad I mean I talk about friendship breakups and how <laughs> yeah I mean, Giles you, you look like you've had one of those <laughs> yeah yeah I certainly have and um yeah they're tough He's, to, he's been trying to break up with me for ages. Yeah. <laughs> Not doing very well. No. <laughs> I just cling on. Like, are we going to start a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> to solidify our friendship. Yeah. Um, it's funny, though. I was thinking on that, like, with regards to um, kind of the books about, maybe books about breakup or, or conversations about breakup are often very kind of heterosexual centric there's not necessarily the same emphasis put on same-sex relationships or you know all these different other aspects of relationships we've sort of touched on a little bit is that something that needs to be addressed a little bit more as well because it's not a one-size-fits-all with regards it's to it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all with regard to relationships ending or beginning or in the middle of yeah. maintaining relationships um and yeah, that's certainly something I addressed in my first book is Monogamy Dead, which was looking at how we have relationships, what monogamy means, how we even talk about monogamy and how we're really bad at talking about monogamy because we just assume it, it means that we don't have sex with other people. But actually, lots of people have different boundaries about mm. emotional closeness or about kissing or different physical things mm. that you could do. And I really learnt the most I've ever learnt about boundaries when I went and did comedy at a sex party. <laughs> very interesting evening. And you, there's a little cabaret before the sort of uh, sex room, if you like, is that's cordoned off. That's opened up later on after the cabaret. But this is just a bit of fun to warm everyone up. And a few comedians and cabaret performers were doing about five minutes each. You don't you don't want to go on too long when people are impatient mm. to get to the. <laughs> <laughs> to get to They're desperate the to get to the sex room. <laughs> um, Enough with the jokes. <laughs> but what was really fascinating to me was. Entering that space, you had to sign up to a list of rules about respecting boundaries, about consent, about communication, about um, being accountable, about looking out for other people's behaviour. And you had to go in with a pal who would basically take you home if you were being a bit drunk or being weird or anything. So these were just these really useful takeaway rules for all our types of relationships and all our situations our professional relationships our working relationships we don't often think about boundaries and how our different attachment styles how our different histories inform how we go about communicating with people and mm. negotiating what we want or what we need or what we hope for or dream for at least and yeah it's uh, it, it's been an eye-opener me to me to think about different types of relationships and more polyamorous types of relationships um, rather than sort of traditional monogamous background that I came from. And, you know, I still had, I suppose, was imbued with a lot of kind of traditional values of just being with one partner, even though mm. I'd thought outside the box to some extent by being with a woman. Um, but yeah, it's, that's been, it's been so, it's been so fascinating to go on that journey and think about, think about relationships and love in a, 
in a very different way and and think about how we how we as humans connect and, and disconnect and how how we can do that more compassionately. Mm, yeah, there's a lot to be learned from each other and from different types of relationships as well, I think. And and obviously we were talking about these different terminology for like your ghosting and your stuff like that. But what it all sort of comes down to it is a lack of or a breakdown of communication, I think. You know, you don't want to have the conversation and explain that you're not into somebody because it's uncomfortable and you get that in relationships as well you don't want to voice your needs or you don't want to put up that boundary and and that might be because that's how you've been brought up and you know you haven't been made to feel safe to sort of communicate your needs but ultimately what it comes down to is a, a communication or a lack of communication and the good relationships whether they are very traditional with you know two people that are in love get married and that's that or two people that like to experiment or do certain things like whatever type of relationship it is I think the key to a successful relationship seems to be communication and being able to communicate your boundaries what you need what you expect of that person what you can offer the other person that sort of thing yeah that's so interesting because I was actually giving a talk in Brixton um, last week just before Valentine's Day and there was a young woman who asked me, well, how can you talk about polyamory to people who are very strictly monogamous? And she felt frustrated that her friends would judge her if she wanted to open up her relationship because um, she saw the two things as very diametrically opposed. And mm. I said, they're really not that different if you think about there are people doing monogamy really well, as you've just mm. described, being really conscious and compassionate and talking in a healthy way about boundaries and their attachment styles and what they bring to the table in terms of hang-ups and <laughs> fears yeah. and neuroses. Um, and there are people doing polyamory really well and having all those conversations too. It's just the difference that I've noticed is that in general, people doing polyamory are sort of forced to have those conversations, whereas within the sort of more traditional monogamous structures, we haven't necessarily realised that we had to, but mm. we, we do, we do need to. Um, it's it's an exercise that we that we all need to do. It's a muscle that needs to be trained um, yeah. to think about how to how to communicate. But also what's been interesting is how how you say, Giles, that a lot of these conversations are very heteronormative and a lot of these books and podcasts and texts are quite heteronormative because I've noticed how many people use the word divorce mm. as opposed to breakup. Mm. And I, like, I don't get me wrong, I love some of the people who are doing some brilliant podcasts about divorce and I've guested on a lot of them and they're fantastic. But when those podcasts started popping up, I felt really excluded by them because I have had, well, I say in my introduction to the book, mm. I've had kind of five marriages, really. Yeah. If mm. I'd have been allowed to, I think I'd have probably had four divorces. Um, <laughs> you know, well, I don't know. Maybe who can get married and get divorced, you, I don't know. Do you have a different conversation and do yeah. you make it work for longer? Do you? Yeah, I don't know. But um, I, I certainly at certain stages and certain points in each of those relationships would have married that person and mm. wanted mm. to and you know actually in one case was proposed to but we couldn't even do anything mm. um at that point um so it's been really interesting to me to see how challenging it is when you want to have a more inclusive conversation how not having the word divorce in your book title actually impacts what charts and what categories you get put into on amazon and what oh, your wow. rankings are and yeah. what your visibility is because a lot of women who've been through a divorce are looking for a book specifically about divorce. Mm. Whereas those women that have somehow circuitously come to me have gone, oh my God, it was so refreshing to read a book by a gay woman about having relationships with women. And mm. it's just like this really different take on it. And you went into the science of it and all these mm. other areas I hadn't really read about when I've been sort of just talking about divorce and how annoying men are. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, they can be, yeah. 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 But, true. you know, so... It, it's really it's been an eye opener mm. to me how trying to have a more inclusive conversation can actually be make it difficult to get out there in in some senses in in terms of your own visibility. Mm, definitely, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, I've said I'm a straight woman, but I found your book really helpful because I've never been married, and and often with these books about divorce and stuff, it's 
it's a very specific demographic of people that have been married. And I think nowadays people are, and I don't, I can't back this up with any facts because I'm just lazy and I can't be bothered to find out. But <laughs> I, I would imagine that nowadays people are getting married a lot later in life. And I'm saying this as a, you know, woman in her thirties as well, <laughs> so, with no kids. So I hope that people are getting married later in life. Um, and so, yeah, pr previously people would be, you know, people of our parents' generation would have been getting married when they were in their sort of late teens, early twenties kind of thing. Um, and now people are getting married a lot later. So you're having a huge stretch of your adult life where you're just going through breakups, which, you know, aside from obviously with marriage and divorce comes the the money side of things and the legalities and stuff like that but emotionally I feel like divorces and breakups can be very similar and they can be very different I mean I think people some people break up um go through a breakup and they're hugely heartbroken and some people go through a divorce and they're kind of like oh god I'm so glad that that's over it's just kind <laughs> of like it, yes. it was ready to end kind of thing well so. it, it yeah it can be this moment of real triumph can't it um if you think about there's a famous picture of nicole kidman when she's yes. got the divorce through from tom cruise <laughs> yes thank god she's, she's yeah. <laughs> exactly um, yeah <laughs> and obviously the, the subtitle of my book is the unexpected joy of heartbreak because it, it is about that journey of freedom transformation reinvention new adventures new mm. journeys i wrote the first half of the book in a sort of backwards timeline and the second half in a forwards timeline to really illustrate that idea that like the sort of child's butterfly painting we do sometimes go through these symmetries in our lives and and the the ending of something is always the beginning mm. of a new chapter which is informed by some some of the color and vibrancy that we remember from that previous relationship but actually mm. we're moving forwards in a new direction oh god yeah when i think about and this is one of my favorite things to do not just with breakups and relationships but just with life things in general i'm kind of big believer of like oh everything happens for a reason and stuff but when I look back on all my relationships I genuinely wouldn't be where I am right now even in this room if any of those relationships had been any different you know, if I hadn't have met this person I probably wouldn't have moved to that town and then I wouldn't have met the next person and then that you know that informed my career in some way and if I hadn't have had my heart broken then I wouldn't have thrown myself into work and yeah so it's so interesting how that kind of it's like the butterfly effect isn't it ironically yeah, all our experiences are part of shaping our identity and, and who we are. All those experiences, good and bad. Pain is sometimes useful, a useful learning experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Giles, you've maybe had like what, one breakup in your life. So <laughs> you're probably, you're sitting here with a very glazed look on your face as someone that's been I've just had, it's all been, it's all been rosy for yeah. me, to be honest. Yeah, it's all been, it's all been great. Um <laughs> But no, but we, we all ex we all do experience, even if it's being um, rejected by, you know, um, Kirsty in year nine at school, you know, whatever it might be. There are, you have moments of those things. I have had big breakups as well. Um, but yeah, we, we, we all experience that. And like you say, it's not always necessarily um, a romantic thing. It could be a friendship or a, a work opportunity you've missed out on, whatever it might be. There's 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 breakups in other forms. Yes. And I mean, the way you speak on social media about sort of compassion and kindness, which is really your thing, isn't it? Mm. You, I, you know, I feel like Giles must have been through some stuff, you know, to, to have that openness and that that desire to communicate that message of of encouraging people to think of one another and and look out for one another. So I think you, you must have you must have had some. Oh, I have, I have. <laughs> but yeah, it does. It forms you, and 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 you and we do. We grow from these experiences, don't we? And going back to what we were saying about the um, the kind of self help books and stuff around divorce. That's interesting. You say that because of the key words, maybe not necessarily in there, that it, it can be detrimental sometimes. Um, I guess a lot of those books probably deal with the kind of grief loss aspect of the breakup as opposed to what we're talking about now, which is that moving on for that thing and how actually those relationships do form us in some way. Yes. I mean, well, I, th I think those two things sort of go hand in hand because you unfortunately have to go through the grief and the loss to get to the reinvention mm. and transformation and the the new you and the positive you that's going to move forward in this energized way and 
be creative and mm. I don't know, write books and, and do things sort of be be fueled by <laughs> by the energy of the breakup in, in a sense. So I, I think those two things go hand in hand. And we certainly do go through a process of grieving. We we have to really for any any loss, whether it's mm. a human relationship or I mean, we lost um, one of our pets, our cat, mm. um, a year or so ago. And we'd, we'd taken on another kitten um, and he, yeah, turned out to be very, very ill and he, he only lived to just over a year. And mm. that I think that was one of the hardest things mm. that I've ever been through. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I cannot cannot cope with pet losses. I, it's, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was awful. Yeah. It's, that's, oh, I'm sorry. they literally so sorry are about part that. of the family and, yeah. and often people kind of, like I see my dog as my, child and yes i've said to all my friends like i've pre-warned like when she does die which hopefully won't be for many years but never will. No. you'll receive a text from me explaining and then you won't hear from me for a few months oh. yeah. deep warning <laughs> yeah it's it's just the worst it's, yeah. it's awful yeah. well i'm sorry to hear that oh. oh well i mean i can comfort myself in that we gave him the most amazing mm. life i mean really from a few months old he was very severely disabled but he clearly was stimulated by and enjoyed being out and about in the world mm. particularly with our dog he absolutely adored our dog so we used to take him around with us in a little papoose and he went to the beach and we got mm. photos of him on the beach having an amazing time he went to a festival prima donna festival which is this wonderful festival oh. celebrating women's writing and my wife was holding him in the audience at my comedy show and one of the other comedians was like hang on there's a cat in the audience <laughs> and she like held up Ziggy our cat and it was like that moment from the lion King where everyone was like oh my god <laughs> and he was like the star of the show but he seemed like he purred all the time he was this cuddly boy he loved people holding him and cuddling him and he seemed to love that sort of attention and and lots of different people and smells and sights mm. and sounds um, until, you know, eventually he just he couldn't sort of see properly mm. or respond properly. So, mm. Mm. but, you know, we gave him a great time. Well, oh, that's, that's the main lovely. thing. That's the main thing. So moving on from breakups, obviously forming new relationships with people. And we talked we sort of touched on it earlier, but it's something that's fascinating me is that kind of where we are now with online dating kind of versus I guess the more organic traditional if if I hate to use that word but kind of meeting people um do you feel like some of that has become a slightly game gamification around that process Yes, that's definitely a word that many dating experts use. My friend Nikki Hodgson, who's written a book about the curious history of dating, she used that word when she guested on my podcast. So, yeah, it has been gamified and people do seem like just players in a game rather than human beings that we need to think about who have feelings, who are, you know, we're not disposable. I talk about... In my first book, I talk about sort of throwing people away like an empty crisp packets. You know, mm. when we've eaten the crisps, we're just like, yeah, whatever. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that game, The Sims? Yes. Um, and you yeah. used to when you create I, your own family. Yeah, I you create really get into people. That. I was addicted to it, and people used to like kill people off for fun and stuff, or a bit like Grand Theft Auto. You know, you yeah. just like walk, walking around with a gun, like shooting people, and it was really fun because you're like, oh, I'm gonna build a swimming pool, and then they're gonna get in the swimming pool, and then I'm gonna take the stairs away, and they're just gonna be swimming around trying to get out of the pool until they die. Wow, you... <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> yeah. we're learning a lot yeah. about you, Sophie. Or <laughs> yeah, or like put them in a room and then take the door. This was these were all like common things. People used to do it for fun, but it was in general like the idea behind the game is like you're playing god and you're like playing with these characters and these people and you have the control and you know it's it kind of for me these dating apps and stuff kind of reminds me a little bit of that mm. like these characters in a game and you're just kind of swiping away i did not know that about you but it's good to know it's good <laughs> to learn these you. things I yeah it is <laughs> yeah. I, i'm gonna leave now <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know i've had fun times and flings and mm. you know shorter connections and relationships in in my past mm. um yeah i mean some of those people then went on to be friends and or went on to be people i was still in touch with in in many ways but mm. yeah, of course we can have we can have fun um it's just i suppose our expectations are often when we date somebody um perhaps when we're you know in our home city and they live nearby 
our expectations, unless it's explicitly stated, are that this might be a long-term relationship. Mm. This mm. might be my new soulmate yeah. for forever. You know, well, I don't know if I believe in forever. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's this idea, isn't there, that there's this another kind of strange term is the relationship escalator where you're basically societally being kind of rushed through all these Mm. relationship stages from dating to living together to getting married to having kids and then eventually you die yay you've reached the sort of summit of (laughs) of relationship goals yeah it's like that um is it, would we call it a nursery rhyme? Not a nursery rhyme, but you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, you love so-and-so. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a golden carriage. That's the, <laughs> you're like going through the stages. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, it is. It's like a societal expectation. And and when you go to a, like events, like weddings and stuff, everyone's like, oh, what next? You're yeah, next. you next. Well, I mean, you, you get thrown the bouquet, yeah. don't you? So like, who's oh, the, yeah. let's pick the next person. Who's the, yeah, who's the next victim? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the, obviously you get the Hollywood thing where they're all vying for the you know for the for the the bouquet and they're shoving each other out the way yeah. they're desperate to get married but yeah it's true though isn't it yeah 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 it like it's and we sort of celebrate wedding anniversaries you know with this ascending hierarchy of gifts from sort of yes, you know yeah, wood yeah. or paper or whatever to oh gold oh, platinum yeah. diamonds yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah it does seem crazy that there's this higher value within that sort of traditional monoculture attached to a longer term relationship even if the people involved are not happy anymore yeah and and probably nobody around them is that happy if they're uh, Mm. unfulfilled Mm. so yeah i do think it's been interesting and that's been another eye-opening part of talking to people who are polyamorous and having more than one significant romantic or sexual relationship and how a relationship's duration might not be this measure of its value you might have this incredibly valuable connection that is fairly short-lived it might be life-changing you know yeah. I've, I've definitely had those well because say you that's something you know you've touched upon a bit there so earlier by saying yeah there's you know that you wouldn't be necessarily where you are without having no significant partners mm. um or even the effect of the breakup yeah, everyone teaches you. I mean, there's that kind of idea that everyone in life, not just relationships, but everybody around you is always constantly holding up mirrors to you, you know, showing you, reflecting back to you the stuff that you don't like about yourself or the stuff yeah. that you're insecure about. Or And and often, I think, in relationships, w- what we tend to do is we see something reflected back at us that we don't like, you know, something that triggers an insecurity. And instead of thinking, oh, this is something that I need to work on, we reflect it back on them and we kind of like oh you're not doing this or you're not doing that like you're not making me happy which is your job kind of thing and then that's when there becomes a bit of resentment build up and contempt and the you know what was it the the four horsemen of the apocalypse (laughs) start to arrive and so yeah I guess there's always that um responsibility on both or all parties I should say to constantly be looking at yourself rather than like expecting other people to make you happy in a relationship because that's not you know it's not our jobs well that actually is very polyamorous thing i think from what you know from a few documentaries i've seen about it is the idea about it's you know it's not up to the partner to make you happy it's up to you to make yourself happy yeah that's right although it's tricky isn't it because partners can definitely make us unhappy yeah (laughs) oh yeah yeah sometimes um but again i think that also though looking at it playing devil's advocate because I've been in relationships where partners have done some like really nasty things but actually I look back in hindsight now as well the onus was on me to recognize I wasn't being treated well and have enough self-worth to walk away but I didn't have the self-worth to recognize that I deserve better kind of thing and so you kind of put up within you think they're going to change and you know the whole thing so yeah it's I know what you mean but I guess in some ways that even that you can lead back to yourself Oh, no, you can indeed. Um, And I think, you know, in relationships that you want to stay in where someone is doing something that is not not making you feel good, then you have to talk about that and you have to talk about how they can just use slightly different language or just think about asking about something in, in a different way or, you know, just maybe going if there if there's something that makes them angry to maybe go and express that somewhere else, <laughs> you know, mm. um, because it's difficult. If someone kind of gets pissed off with things that 
you know they liked about you at first um it, it that can be a challenge can't it if mm. you um that's a good point yeah so so it's like you feel like well should i be changing am i do i need to take responsibility for something that is you know my partner doesn't like or is it actually somehow they're responding to me in a, in a different way and is that something about their changing feelings and feelings change through the course of a relationship uh, quite naturally the different chemicals that are whizzing through the brain are very different right at the beginning of a connection when mm. we are very focused if we're you know if if we are sexual beings some people are asexual and they might have a slightly different way of, of going about the start of a relationship but for many of us we you know do have that phase of having a lot of sex which is a lot of fun um but then that changes and it can it can feel quite rejecting and it can feel hard when when that does change and particularly maybe for the partner who has a higher sex drive they may feel rejected so there are a lot of things even if we're in a relatively healthy and good and compassionate and you know secure relationship there are still things that need to be negotiated and discussed mm. and, and talked about because no two people are ever going to kind of grow in exactly the same way and in exactly the same direction. And, you know, if I think sometimes if you stay together, it's not always a great sign if you stay together forever because you haven't both perhaps grown in, in mm. the way that you wanted to. Mm. Sometimes growing apart is still growth. It's still healthy growth. Yeah, definitely. And you speak a bit about the different types of, well, the different reasons behind why people break up. And so I think like sexual incompatibility is definitely one of them. And I forget what the others were now. You might be able to inform me, but it's sexual. I don't, don't ask why that was the one that I remember. You just remembered that one, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because, sex was like, yeah, yeah, because yeah. that's that's number one, really. <laughs> that is the key in in a very sexualized society. When we feel the pressure to have sex all the time, we do often assume that if the sex stops in a relationship, that means we should break up, which often isn't necessarily the case at all. Um, but we do have to have a discussion about how we still want to have some intimacy or whether, you know, some people might open up a primary partnership. I know certainly some people who've, who've done that very successfully and they might express themselves sexually with, with other partners. Mm. And then perhaps that might even energize the primary partnership again. Or, you know, some people might move away from needing a certain type of sex, a certain script about how we're supposed to have sex and what the end goal of that is. They might look for other forms of intimacy as they as they get older. I mean, women, I talk a bit in my book about women going through perimenopause and, and menopause and mm. your hormones are all over the place at that time in your life. And sometimes you feel really sexy. And then for a long, long period, you might feel so unattractive and unsexy mm. um, because you're just, your body's just going through so many changes. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. that sex is definitely a big, big, a big, big factor in how we think about our relationships and whether they're going well or not. You know, I know people who are in quite bad relationships but because they have mind-blowing sex every time they have a terrible argument. <laughs> they kind of think, oh, well, everything's fine again. Yeah, passionate. <laughs> it's passionate. It's passion, yes, yes. It's just passion. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I yeah. guess the sexual incompatibility, I guess financial incompatibility or lifestyle incompatibility, whatever the incompatibilities are that lead the breakup. Again, it comes back to communication, I guess. So, you know, communicating what your yeah. needs are, communicating yeah. what's, what's changed. Yeah, I, th I think some of the other reasons were sort of uh, drug and alcohol, mental health oh, yeah. issues. Um, mm. But yeah, money, money is a, an incompatibility, not necessarily in terms of whether you have money or you don't have money, but whether your belief systems about money are mm. compatible or not. Um, but also um, your sort of political values. And it's interesting how divorce rates rose after, you know, a very binary referendum like Brexit, mm. but also during the pandemic, you know, I mean, of course, there was the factor of people being cooped up together and realising they didn't like each other very mm. much. Um, but then there was also the sort of, vaccine or no vaccine you know that yeah. that was a discussion that polarized many people as well yeah it's yeah i suppose it's a, it was a very cultural specific thing to suddenly realize you're not compatible like having whether or not you're going to get a vaccination for some obscure 
a virus that we didn't even know existed like a few years previously yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly you find yeah. yourself breaking up over it or getting into big arguments about it yeah yeah it's that is interesting yeah it's it's interesting that you talk about the sort of financial mindset over because I think when most people think about financial inequality or financial incompatibility, they you know presume it's more, oh, well, this person earns more and so they are accustomed to a different type of lifestyle or whatever. But actually you can get two people that earn a lot or two people that don't earn very much money relatively and their mindsets are so wildly different. And so it causes sort of issues in other areas. You know, someone might believe that all wealthy people are evil and that money is you know the root of all evil or whatever the phrase is and then someone else might be just very into like charitable giving or whatever just might not need much money to survive off of and stuff like that it's quite it's quite interesting actually yeah no it's really interesting and where you do have an inequality in earnings i suppose it's about how the person earning more sort of recognizes the position of power they are potentially in mm. and how to help the other person to feel empowered um and it's certainly been that's been one of the trickiest topics in my relationship with my wife because she has a much more stable income than I do mm. as a writer and comedian and speaker and and thinker and and all of this kind of stuff um you know so yeah I, it sometimes can feel hard because mm. I work really really hard often for very little um authors often don't get paid very well for for writing books not so much because publishers are taking all money mm. but because certain retailers are yeah. um, <laughs> but you know I still tell everyone they've got to buy my book there because you know we're sort of trapped into this terrible thing but <laughs> <laughs> buy the book <laughs> the breakup monologues <laughs> um yeah but it, yeah it's hard and it's definitely been something we've had to really really think about about how we you know sort of do things fairly and mm. happily, you know, and, and you know, sometimes I'll pay for dinner and take us out for brunch or whatever. But, you know, typically if it's somewhere really expensive, she might pay because she is earning more, mm. you know. Um, but she wants us to be able to still treat ourselves and go out for those more expensive meals that I wouldn't be able to afford very regularly, to be honest. Um yeah, but it, yeah, it's it's complex. Mm. It is, it is. Um, but Rosie, this has been fantastic. I mean, always learn a lot talking to you about all sorts of different aspects of flesh. It's obviously been a therapy session for yeah. uh, that's Sophie. what I was trying to say um, earlier. I was like, "What's a nice way of putting this?" That I'm excited <laughs> to talk to you because because I car, need to talk to on you on the car on the way up. I was like, "I can't wait! I can't wait!" <laughs> <laughs> Need some help. I just yeah. love stuff. No, it's just I just love I just love stuff like this. Honestly, it's right up my street. I find relationships and just the just the concept of relationships so fascinating. And yeah, yeah, it really is. And I think it's so transferable to our work relationships, our friendships, all our different types of relationships. Just thinking about how we treat one another, how mm. we communicate. As I think that's come up as the key. So yeah, definitely. And I have even been known to do some spoof therapy in character as Do Dr. Love was my <laughs> oh, character. Could we do a quick... And it was kind of art installation thing <laughs> where a friend of mine asked me to do some, uh, yeah, quick little performances where people would come and see, couples mostly would come and see me for spoof couples therapy. And I just sort of recited them some kind of spoof love poetry and, <laughs> and that kind of thing but they, they oh said you've they, saved my marriage they said they felt much better than when they saw their real therapist <laughs> gives them a giggle at least yeah, yeah. laughter is healing yeah, yeah exactly well thank you Rosie it's been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much and uh, well if people want to keep in touch um, I would love to hear from them I'm at breakup monologues on Instagram and at Rosie will be on Twitter if that continues to survive yeah, oh goodness. That's a whole new, different podcast, that one. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Unquestionable.